for our Advent series this month. We'll be going through the book of Malachi, so I'll invite you this morning to turn with me in your Bibles to the last book of the Old Testament, God's last covenant word to His people prior to the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ in the prophet Malachi. Malachi 1, we'll be looking at the first five verses. Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Here ends the reading of God's word this morning. Well, blessed congregation, as we turn our calendars to the month of December, we enter what is commercially known in the United States as the holiday season, but what has been historically known as the church, as in the church as the Advent season. Boys and girls, Advent means, is a Latin word I should say, which means the approaching or the coming the arrival. And Advent captures within that word a sense of waiting. Yes, Advent is the commemoration of the greatest gift the world has ever been given. A commemoration of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. How not an angel came to save us, not another man came to save us, but that God Himself incarnate by the Virgin Mary, came to save His people. But in Advent, there is also the recognition that we as the church continue to wait. We await the second Advent. As one author says, Advent is about the waiting. But we live in an impatient culture. You can ask Lisa, I hate waiting. My generation is used to fast money, fast fashion, fast food. True waiting for Jesus is hard work. Waiting in faith is not something we enjoy, but Advent, part of Advent, is it teaches us that we must wait. Not with a lazy indifference, but we must learn to wait with holy expectation. This is why Malachi is such a wonderful place to meditate on in the Christmas season. This is God's last covenant word to Israel before the advent of Christ. The last book of the Old Testament. And the prophet Malachi is writing to what we call a post-exilic people. A people who had been in exile in Babylon and God has brought them out of there back to Israel. But it's been a hundred years. 
Jerusalem is rebuilt. The temple is rebuilt. And now they are asking, a hundred years after coming out of exile, God, when will You fulfill Your promises? And in many ways, this mirrors our own faith today. 2,000 years after the first advent of Christ. Why is the church not full? Why do we still struggle with sin? Where is the Christ? We have the same questions that Israel had. But the prophet in this book tells the people that they must firmly fix their hope on the advent of Christ. If you flip with me in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, we have a beautiful messianic promise. This is the promise of Advent. That the Son of Righteousness, chapter 4, verse 2, shall rise with healing in His wings. Did you notice when we sang, Hark the herald angels sing, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace! Hail the Son of Righteousness! Let life and life to all He brings risen with healing in His wings. The breakthrough for the waiting faith is in the Bethlehem's manger. See, this Advent, I pray that by God's grace, we would remember the past in Christ's first Advent. But may He also inspire us to a faith for the future Advent. Advent must preach the coming of Christ yesterday and tomorrow. Because we too, like Israel, are called to fix our hope in the advent of Christ. I want to show you this in three points this morning. The proclamation of God's love, the demonstration of God's love, and the fulfillment of God's love. The proclamation, the demonstration, and the fulfillment of God's love. First, let's notice the proclamation. Have you ever said this? Life was supposed to be better than this. That's what Israel was saying after the exile. It, was, it has been a century since they've come back to the promised land. They've rebuilt Jerusalem. They have rebuilt the temple. But they remained what is called a vassal state, which meant that Israel was under the control politically of someone else, that being Persia. And they looked around the city and they looked around the temple and they said, Lord, is this really what You had in plan for us? You see, we have to go to other post-exilic books to understand this. But in Zechariah chapter 8, we see that people were complaining to the Lord, the temple is built, but the pews are empty. Where are Your people? They lived, Nehemiah chapter 7 tells us, in a large city with walls of defense, but so few people lived in it. Where was the great, peop- where was the great influ- inflowing of people? Where was the economic success? Where was their culture? The people that Malachi is writing to, they don't feel like the chosen people anymore. This land doesn't feel like the promised land anymore. The people feel neglected. They feel ignored. They feel forgotten. And so Malachi is given this prophecy. And in the Hebrew, 
It's actually much more abrupt than it reads in our English Bibles. If you look at chapter 1, verse 1, our Pew Bible reads, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by, uh, by Malachi. But this doesn't really capture the sense of the Hebrew. In Hebrew, it reads more like this. An oracle. The word of Yahweh to Israel by the hand of Malachi. Put an exclamation point after oracle. And the word there is actually the Hebrew word for burden. You could read it like this. A burden. The word of Yahweh to Israel by the hand of Malachi. And that's a loaded word there. See, often in the New Old Testament, that word is really only ever seen prefixed to prophecies of judgment. It's only ever spoken about in terms of God's enemies. You see this in Isaiah 13. It's used for Babylon. God has a burden for Babylon. Isaiah 13, verse 1. What about for Moab in Isaiah 15, verse 1? He has a burden for them. And Damascus in Isaiah 17, verse 1. But here in Malachi, verse 1, it says that God has a burden for Israel. One commentator puts it like this. This would be like if your boss sent you an email and it said, see me right away. Or boys and girls, if you have a phone, your dad texts you, come home now. Ominous. There's a dark cloud to these words. These are supercharged words. But now, boys and girls, if you get a text from mom and dad that says, come home now, what do you think is going to happen once you get home? Well, we jump to the conclusion, right? We're going to get a harsh word from dad. But notice God's burden. What's His covenant word to His people? Verse 2, I have loved you. That is, despite Israel's checkered history, and despite their complicated present, God still loves His people. Even though they couldn't see it with their eyes, even though the church looked empty, even though Jerusalem looked weak politically, God's abiding love rested upon them. He does not begin this address with words of judgment, but with a word of commitment and affirmation. Well, the wise reader might notice here that God's statement is in the past tense, but God is not saying here that I have loved you once, but I don't anymore. Actually, the Hebrew is kind of hard to interpret here, but as one commentator says, by ease of your understanding, he says you can translate it like this, I have loved you in the past. And I still do now. I still love you. But doesn't Israel's response reveal a lot about the condition of their heart? I have loved you, says the Lord, but look how they respond. How have you loved us? He's describing the inner attitude of their hearts. And really, it's in the form of a question, but this is a statement. 
This is a statement. Husbands, if you come home and kiss your wife and you say, I love you, dear, and she responds with, how have you loved me? Trust me, that's a statement. It's a statement, you're in deep trouble. But when you contrast Israel's love with God's love, what are we seeing? Israel's love is conditional, but God's love is not predicated on conditions. He has what I want to present to you as a covenantal love. These are not the warm, fuzzy feelings that you have for someone when they do something nice for you. Or when they they give you a gift. But when God describes Himself as a covenant-keeping God, covenant meaning pact or promise, He is describing Himself as someone who holds Himself to His promise. He ties His feeling, or excuse me, He ties His love not to feelings, but to His obligations. That even if we feel like the people of Israel, where is your blessing? Where is your promise? Where is your Christ? His word is still true for us today. I still love you. A covenantal love can never be broken. This is what the Apostle Paul talks about, we learned about a few weeks ago in Romans chapter 8, that God's covenantal love is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, Paul says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword for your sake? We are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But what does Paul say? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. That there is nothing Israel can do to make God love them less. And there is nothing Israel can do to make God love them more. And Paul says, so it is with us today in Christ. Uh, Maybe this Christmas season, as we enter into another Advent year, you feel like a bit of a Scrooge. Bah humbug. Christmas. Love. Joy. Peace. Hope. Okay, get, get done with it. I don't need it. Maybe you feel like Israel did with their cynical hearts. You say you love me, Lord, but prove it. You love me? Look at my grades. You love me? Look at my family. Look at my job. Look at my finances. How have you loved us? Well, before we answer that question, Well, we've already answered it in some way. But how do we get cynical hearts? How do our hearts become so calloused and hard like Israel's? Well, I think there are two factors which you can highlight this morning. In a cynical heart, we become cynical to God's love when we forget what God has done for them. What He has done for us. You think that what a question this is. What have you done for us? How have you loved us? How has He not loved Israel? Creating them. Choosing them. And even in their sin, bringing them out of exile. But they need to remember these things. And so in Advent, we remember how God has loved us in Christ. Secondly, we become cynical 
when religion becomes a formality. We'll see this in the rest of the book of Malachi, but the prophet will tell them they offered sacrifices, but not from the heart. Isaiah, or excuse me, Malachi 1, verse 7, verse 8, verse 13. They repented, but it wasn't repentance from the heart. Chapter 2, verse 13. Chapter 3, verse 14. They said vows, chapter 1, verse 14. But it didn't come from a place of love. Their religion was external. It hadn't reached into their hearts. But yet God proclaims, even to a cynical, even to a disrespectful, even to an irreverent attitude, I have loved. And I still love. Beloved congregation, hear this word of application this Christmas season. This story reminds us that whatever your circumstance, whatever human perception comes to you, whatever seemingly stands against you, you can have a settled rest that God is for you in Christ. He is not against you. He is not against your church. He is not against your family. God stands, even in His bitter providence, as a God of love for His people in Christ. What a comforting word this would have been for Israel. It's a comforting word for us. So God proclaims His love, but how does He demonstrate His love? You see, many of us, if our spouses say to our I love you's, how have you loved us? We would probably respond with rebuking them. I provide for you. Give you a roof over your head. I raise the kids for you. But rather than rebuking Israel for their cynical question, or laying out a litany of things God has done for them, instead He demonstrates how He loves them. I have loved you in salvation. I have loved you in my purposes of election. How have you loved us? God answers, in salvation. You see, the greatest evidence of God's love is that He saves lost sinners. Jacob, I have loved. He reminds them of the Old Testament patriarch, Jacob. Now, boys and girls, I think I've said this before, but do you know who my favorite Bible character is? Pastor Jacob, it should be pretty obvious. It's Jacob. Not because Jacob is the greatest guy of the Bible, but Jacob is a very important person. 378 times Jacob is referred to in the pages of the Holy Bible. And he is important. Not because he's a great man. Actually, it's quite the opposite. He's important because He shows us what it means to be saved by grace. You see, in verse 3, the the prophet Malachi mentions that Jacob and Esau were both twin brothers. We're told in Genesis 25 how Jacob and Esau warred together in the womb, and then in their birth, Esau comes out first, and Jacob is born immediately after, grasping on to his heel. And so Jacob's mother, very kindly, decides to name him supplanter, deceiver, a twister. And what do you know? Jacob lives up to his name. His life is full of lying and full of deceit. 
Remember, rather than feeding his starving brother, he swindles his birthright from him. We talked about it a few weeks ago. He goes into his blind, aged father and he lies to him. He even uses God's name to deceive Isaac. Remember, he deceives his uncle Laban. He forgets God's promises at Bethel. He has 11 rotten sons. But look what God says in verse 2. Jacob, I have loved. One thing I've noticed in my work as a minister, in doing funerals, families often like to summarize someone's life in one word. He or she was very musical. He or she was very giving. They were always happy. Well, if you were to describe Jacob's life in one word, how could you describe it? God defines Jacob's life with love. Jacob, I have loved. The inherent quality of Jacob's life is love. Not because he was a loving guy, not because he loved much, but because Jacob was much loved. And God's fingerprint of love is all over Jacob's life. When Jacob was born, God said, the older shall serve the younger. God multiplies Jacob's flocks, protects him from danger, provides for him in famine. He wrestles with the angel. The pre-incarnate Christ was revealed to him. And before he dies, it says in Genesis 49, Jacob blesses his sons. He picks his feet up into his bed. He lifts up his hands. And in Genesis 49, verse 10, he says, I have awaited your salvation, O Lord. What is Jacob saying? He's saying, I am a sinner who is loved. I am a sinner who has been graced with Your grace. And now I give myself to eternal salvation in Christ. Beloved, there is no greater evidence of God's love than His decision to save lost sinners. How have You loved us? He doesn't point to a a full barn. He doesn't point to national success or any other metric. He points to salvation in Christ. We see this in the angel's song in the birth of Christ. If you have a Bible, you can flip with me to Luke chapter 2, verse 13. Where the angels cry out, glory to God in the highest. That the highest glory that God has, the greatest gift He can give, the greatest blessing that we can have, how have you loved us? The answer is Advent. That the Messiah will come and save you from your sins. 
Yet there were two brothers. Malachi mentions the second brother, Esau. Esau is Jacob's uh, slightly elder brother. Same parents, same upbringing, same womb even. They both have a sinful character. Yet Jacob I have loved, God says. And Esau I have hated. One receives mercy while the other receives justice. Which of the two deserve favor? Trick question. Neither. But Jacob is the recipient of God's love only by grace. Here is God's point to Israel this morning. If God kept His promise to sinful, wicked, conniving Jacob, He will keep His promise to Israel. Jacob, because of his lies, was exiled from his home. Jacob was exiled from his family. He never saw Rebekah, his beloved mother, again. The land God had promised, Jacob wasn't a part of it. But at Bethel, when Jacob was alone and vulnerable, God appeared to him. God promised to protect him. God promised to prosper him. God promised to lead him. Jacob had a cynical heart. But despite his scheming, God kept His promise. Malachi invites Israel to think of themselves in the same way. That like Jacob, though they are weak and sinful, God's promise is sure. Their heart may be hard, but the Messiah is coming. Here's a word of application. When life is hard, it is tempting to doubt God's covenant love. But the life of Jacob and Esau teaches us to interpret God's providence in light of His love rather than interpreting His love in light of His providence. Interpret providence in light of His love rather than interpreting His love by His love by providence. You see, Christians can fall into the, the same trap. We think God is against me. But Malachi teaches us that behind everything that comes to God, there is a heart of love. And so it is with Israel's exile. So it is with their struggles that through them, God would produce the Messiah, the Christ. See, this is our final point this morning. The fulfillment of God's love. See, the contrast between Jacob and Esau The contrast between Israel and Edom revealed the dynamics of the Gospel. Ian Duguid says, sin requires judgment. But in the Gospel, it is possible to pass through judgment to restoration. See, God's covenantal love to Jacob and Israel ultimately points beyond them to the Gospel. Where judgment falls not on on deserving sinners, but where judgment falls on God's beloved Son. This is why the angels proclaim peace on earth with whom He is pleased. God has brought peace to us in Christ. But sometimes, as we've mentioned throughout this message, we doubt God's love and commitment. Like Israel. Maybe you feel like Israel today. Everyone else seems to prosper while my hopes, my dreams go unfulfilled. We compare ourselves to others in an unhelpful way. 
We think they have true peace. They have true happiness. They have true joy. While God's people suffer. Hear the words of the prophet. If you have everything but not God's love, you have nothing. But if you have nothing with God's love, you have everything. Or maybe you feel like Jacob this morning. Where God gives you the promises, but you can't get out of your own way. Every time, everything you touch seems to fall apart. Our goals and desires go unmet because of our own stubborn self-reliance. This too changes our relationship with God. Why are you doing this to me after all I've done for you? Or finally, maybe you're like Esau and Edom where God doesn't really affect your daily life. When Jacob met Esau, Esau didn't give credit to God for his blessings. The Edomites rested in their mountainous stronghold. That was their security. We too can trust our skills, our money, our intellect. So all then, Israel, Jacob, Esau, and Edom, all deserve judgment for their sins. But Malachi ends his speech, look at this with the promise of restoration. Your own eyes shall see this. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. This is a promise that you in the Gospel can pass through judgment to restoration. And that salvation goes beyond the border of Israel. So much so that the Apostle James in the book of Acts says these verses about Edom here and elsewhere are about the prophecy of Christ and how His mercy extends to people beyond Israel all the way to the ends of the earth. In the angel's proclamation, He came as a man to save men. He came to be poor, to save the poor. He came to save the meek and lowly, or He came as meek and lowly, I should say, to save the meek and lowly. His mercy is not just for the rich elites in Jerusalem, but is for all peoples. Glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. See, I don't know every person in this room I don't know every struggle you've gone through. And you might this morning feel like Israel did. An outsider to God's people. You hear about Christ's love, God's love in Christ, and you think, my cynical heart won't take it. But the prophet says, His love and the incarnation will overrule it all. He can smash hardened hearts. He can save even wicked people like the Edomites. And we shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. 2,000 years ago, Israel's hope was born. But one day soon, people from all tribes, nations, and tongues will gather before Him and sing with the angels, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth with us with us gentiles edomites jews beyond the border of israel shall we sing great is the lord
Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this word to your people of old to fix their hope, to put their joy in the advent of the Christ to come. And Father, we identify in many ways with the people to whom Malachi writes. Fill your church, we pray. Father, send your Christ. Bless your people. And so you have called us to to firmly fix our eyes, yes, at the manger, but also in the coming again of Christ. We thank you for his coming. And we pray, Lord, that if you be pleased to open our eyes today, that we might see him and know him, and that we might fix our hearts on the coming again of Christ soon. Come, come quickly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.